I didn't want her to have that baby here. I got to let her go first. <laughs> it's always great to be here. Even though James, James Lehman's name is in here as speaking this morning, I'm not James. Okay, so just so you know. But it's great to fill in. Good to see many of you that I know. All, a lot of you are old, old friends. Some of you are really old, old friends. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you picked up a bulletin when you came in. You know, it looks uh, something like that little folder, and it says on the front, Minor Prophets. Do you have one of those? Because you're going to need one of those. Does anybody need one? If you need one, raise your hand, and Gary's going to find you one. (laughs) Gary, is there more out there? Uh, there are two outlines in there. One of them is an outline of what I want to share with you, and, and you'll need what's written on the outline rather than opening your Bible because I'm going to mess up the verses a little bit. So you'll need that. And the other, uh, this begins a series in the Minor Prophets. Now you need to understand that uh, James uh, asked me to fill in, and he gives the assignments. So I got these passages and uh, to start this thing on the minor prophets. This is not my choice, folks. Okay? You appreciate that, right? Yeah, you get assigned. If you want to speak here, you get assigned what you're going to talk about. So this morning, if you don't have, if you don't have a bulletin, raise your hand. So one of these uh, looks like this because uh, to begin with the minor prophets uh, presents some confusion in my mind, just for starters, because I always get these minor prophets all mixed up. So in your bulletin, there's a chronological outline of the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, you know, not everybody totally agrees with all this, but it helps a little bit to know where do these prophets fit in with one another. So this prophet that we're going to look at today is the prophet Nahum, and we're assigned to look at the first eight verses of chapter 1. And if you go down this list, you find Nahum almost in the middle of the page. He is a prophet that lived in the land called Judah, the two tribes that were left in the south after the ten northern tribes were taken into captivity by Assyria. And he prophesies, writing this prophecy. So now you know where he belongs. James will be continuing with some other minor prophets. You might want to hold on to this. I told him I did his work for him. (laughs) He was appreciative, okay? So you can hang on to that. The assignment is the first eight verses of Nahum, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And uh, before we read this, uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 isn't really a verse. Actually, it's called a superscription. You know, when you get a book and you uh, look on the book, you try, what is this book about? What is this all about? You usually turn to the back or you open to the first page and you have a little, little summary of what the book is about. Well, verse 1, that, at least that's what it's called in most of your Bibles, is kind of a superscription, a summary of what this little prophet of three chapters has to say to us. So I'm going to read this superscription. This is what it says. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Nahum. This is an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So we ought to look at a couple of these words because this is what this is all about. First word, this is an oracle. 
Well, this is a statement. This is something some translators translated a burden. This is a weight that is on this man, and he wanted to write it down. He wanted to get it out so that everybody knew what he had to say. His name is Nahum. We've already looked at him. We have no idea who he is. We know about when he lives. That's how we can place him in the chronology, but we don't know much about it. He didn't write anything else. He didn't say anything else that we know of. So he's an unknown author. But he got a vision. He got a vision from God. And we don't know how this vision came, whether it came in the middle of the night and God revealed these things to him, whether he was out on a camping trip somewhere and God spoke to him. We don't know. doesn't make any difference. But he wrote this. And he wrote this in poetry. This is Hebrew poetry. It's three chapters long. The last two chapters have to do with judgment. And they're not very pleasant and we're not going to look at them. The first chapter has to do with what the Lord God is like. And that's a little easier for us to digest, and that's what the assignment is, the first eight verses of chapter 1. And all of this is written about a place that we know very little of. It's written about a place called Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This was a big empire, The Assyrian Empire lasted some 200 years. The Assyrian Empire is said to have had such a huge capital of Nineveh that its circumference, the walls of the city, were some 60 miles around and 100 foot high. This was a major, major city in the 700, 800 years before Christ. There was a land mass that it occupied took a little bit of Turkey, a little bit of Iran, a little bit of Syria, and a little bit of present-day Iraq. That was all the Assyrian Empire. It's a big place. And Nineveh is the capital. Now, we have met Nineveh in the Old Testament before through a prophet named Jonah. You all know the story of Jonah. Jonah also had something to say to Nineveh. He actually went there. He went to Nineveh and he told them, either you repent or God is going to destroy you. And the amazing thing is, was that they repented. This is about 100 years before Nahum. So he went, it worked, but now 100 years have gone by and it seems as though God needs to say something else to Nineveh. Now we need to understand that Nineveh is never going to read what Nahum wrote. You got that? Do I need to say that again? Nahum is not going to Nineveh. They're never going to hear these words. These words are written to God's people about Nineveh. Now, you also might be interested in knowing that Nineveh, although it doesn't exist today, is very close to a city that we know all about. Just very short distance from where Nineveh used to be, is a city called Mosul, in the news all the time today. It's a battleground. That's where Nineveh used to be. These people in Nineveh were not nice people. They were an extremely cruel culture. 
they destroyed everything around them. I got a couple of quotes. People have written books about Nineveh and their people. This is a quote from a book that was written years ago. Just, I'm just going to read these to you. This is from King Shalmanasher III, 800 years before Christ. This is what he said about himself. He was king of the Assyrian Empire. With the supreme power with which Lord Asher endowed me, I fought. I overthrew 14,000 of their armies. I piled up their corpses. The plain was too small to hold all the dead. This was a cruel, nasty culture. Another king, some hundred years after that, writes, I crush under my feet the whole land, including Tyre, Sidon, Omri. I laid on them all a heavy tribute. These were not pleasant people. So Nahum is going to write something to the people of God about their destruction. And if we go to the last chapter, now we're not supposed to go there because we're only supposed to take the first eight verses of chapter 1. But if we sneak and go to the last chapter of Nahum in verse 6, this is what he says in the end of all this, okay? I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? So if you want to go today and see Nineveh, whoops, can't find it. As a matter of fact, it was discovered and unearthed in 1843. It was under 14 million tons of dirt. Well, that sort of worked out the way Nahum said, didn't it? The crazy thing is, just this week I watched a documentary on the reconstruction, on the excavations that are being done in ancient Nineveh. It's a war zone, so can't get too close these days to do much, but they're actually excavating old Nineveh and bringing back all some of the things that they have found. But the city the, was all totally destroyed. The whole empire was all gone. Actually, a country, an empire named Babylon, did all of that. Okay, now with all that behind us, Nahum says, let me tell you about God. This is written to God's people. Let me tell you about God, the God who's going to do this to Nineveh. So this part is all about what God is like. Now, it's almost, as I read these eight verses, like, like Nahum's having an argument with himself. And so I kept reading them over and reading them over, and I decided I'd break them up into different parts so I could understand it. So I'm going to give you this argument of his with himself, broken up this way, so maybe it will help you to understand it. He seems to talk about God having three characteristics. There seem to be three descriptions of what the Lord God is like. They're not the same. They don't necessarily harmonize with each other, although he puts them all together. He puts all these together. He says, you can't separate these out. This is what our Lord God is. This is to the people of God. So here's the first thing he says about what the Lord God is like. He says, our Lord God is a powerful, controlling creator God. 
You got that one? He is a powerful, controlling, creator God. That's who this is. And to tell us about that, he gives us some descriptions that we're familiar with. Here's the first one. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, the middle of the verse, The Lord is great in power. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He says, God is like a tornado. Did you watch what happened in Fairdale, Illinois on Friday? Past, just Friday? 200 mile an hour winds from a tornado? Nahum said, that's what God is like. He's like a tornado. A powerful, controlling creator. Then he adds to this, you can also see God in drought. Chapter 1, verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers of Bashan, Bashan being the pasture lands of his day, and Carmel, which seemed to be the vineyards of his day, and the bloom of Lebanon, the forests, all of this withers. God is a God who brings drought to a land. Now, we're somewhat familiar with drought, We like our artesian well water here, but we look at our brothers and sisters in California who've had their water cut back by some 25%. You've seen the pictures of the land breaking up where there used to be water, and we say, that's what God is like. God is like that, a powerful creator, controlling God. Then he also adds, God's also like an earthquake. Chapter 1, verse 5. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Now, I have never lived in an earthquake, maybe some of you have, but I can just imagine what it will be like when the earth begins to shake, and there's nothing that anybody can do about that. That's what God is capable of doing. That's what God is like. He's like, he produces earthquakes. Got this picture he's painting for us? A powerful creator God. Then fourth and lastly in verse 6, the last second part of verse 6, he says he's also like a volcano poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. I've never watched an exploding volcano, but I have had the pleasure, if I could call it that, of walking on Kilauea in the big island of Hawaii and walking across where all those bubbling things are coming up out of the ground and the smoke and thinking, this is not a good place to be. Some of you may have gone to Yellowstone and looked at what's coming up out of the ground in Yellowstone and said, you know, this not only smells bad, this does not seem to be safe. God is like that. He is a powerful, controlling God. Now, there's no question about it. All these things happen, right? Droughts, tornadoes, earthquakes, volcanoes, they all happen. Does God make them happen when he calls them forth? Or do they just happen because God has created a creation that allows them to happen? I don't know. And you don't know for sure either. But the picture is painted. Nahum says, I want you to know what God is like. To the people of God, he is a powerful creator and a controlling God. That's the first description. Second description of God. 
they're going to get worse. You ready? Second description of God, this God is an angry and a righteous God. Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Verse 3. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out. Verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into the darkness. You want to raise your hand if you like that description of God? We don't like that one. As a matter of fact, people throw that into our face all the time. Yeah, if that's what your God is like, how can he be a God of love? Nahum says, you need to know what God is like. He's a powerful creator God, and he's righteous, and he judges his enemies. He's angry. He is absolute holiness and righteousness. You know, God made it clear to the people of God that he was not going to put up with any nonsense. Remember what he said from the very beginning in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5? You shall not bow down to them, to idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I visit iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Can, do that. can God do that? Yes, he can. That's what Nahum wants the people of God to understand. This God is a righteous judge. So we have two pictures of God. First picture, a powerful creator, God. Second picture, a righteous, angry God with those who reject him, who want no parts of him. Now we have a third picture that Nahum gives us, and we like this one better. He is also a gracious, loving God. Verse 3 again, the Lord is slow to anger. He's not a hothead, not rash about his decisions. I mean, it's been a hundred years since he warned Nineveh and he hadn't done anything yet there. So he's not anxious to bring his judgment. He's a gracious God. Verse 7, the Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. This God is not only good and gracious, he's a refuge. He's a refuge when people experience trouble. If they belong to God, he is their refuge and their hope. I'll tell you, that would be really important to me today if I lived in Kenya, if I lived in Sudan, if I lived in Syria, and I was a Christian. I would want to know that what was going on around me, which was terribly unpleasant and distasteful, God was my refuge. Nahum wants to paint the picture. This is what our God is like. A powerful creator God. A righteous, holy, judging God. And a gracious, loving God with refuge for those who come to him. You got the picture? That's good, so we should quit there. 
We should really quit there. That's where we should quit. This would be good. It would all be over, and then we wouldn't have to worry about anything. But that wouldn't be like me. So we've got to create a little problem here. So what are you going to do with this? If this is written to the people of God, that's us, what are we going to do with this? Now, this is supposed to elicit questions and discussion from you. So I don't want you mad at me by the time we're finished. Just able to discuss and question. Question with yourself and question it with people around you. So I'll give you three questions to deal with. Here's the first one. Can I pick and choose what kind of God I like? Like going to a store, you know. Well, I think I'll take this one and maybe a little bit of this. No. I can't do that, can I? I can't do that. I can't say, well, you know, I'll just take the gracious, loving God. But then I watch TV and I see some awful, terrible things and I say, God, you need to get on to this one and you need to bring a little righteous judgment right there. It's not my choice here. I don't get to pick and choose God's behavior at any given time. Got that part? You agree with that? Second question. Can I be certain that when something terrible happens, God caused it to happen? Now, I asked my wife this, and she said to me, absolutely yes. I don't know where you are on that. You, you do know about what happened in Boston this year, don't you? You know how much snow they had. They broke all the records. Horrible, terrible, disastrous weather in Boston. Did God do that? That's exactly right. God did that because our Seahawks lost the, the game. So God brought judgment to them. Please do not go out and tell anyone that. <laughs> but we mess around with that a little bit, don't we? Do you remember this ship, the Titanic, 1912, sunk on its maiden voyage? Did God do that? Did God make the iceberg? Did God cause the iceberg to run up against the ship and the ship sunk and all those people died? Did God do that? Philip Morrow said so in 1912. He said the reason God did that is because people said this ship cannot be sunk, so God sunk it. Maybe. Do I know? No. Do you know? No. You okay with that? Do you remember 9-11? You know, when they took down the towers in New York City? You remember that? Do you remember what people said about that? Some people of God people? Some people of God people said, God brought that because of the disintegration of the culture of America. 
Did he? I don't know. Do you know? Well, unless your name is Nahum and you've had a vision from God, I don't know that any of us can say with absolute certainty, could God do that? Oh, yes. Did God do that? I don't know. You all right with that? Does God do things? Yes. I don't know. Here's the last question. Can I become the instrument to accomplish God's judgment? So could God use me to be the instrument to bring about his righteous judgment? Now, the fact that God has done this is obviously true. There was a young man named David who went up against Goliath, and God used that young David to destroy the enemy, right? And then there was that same young man who became king of Israel, and and he went out and destroyed the Amalekites, and God used him and his army to bring about that victory. So God can do that. But can God or will God use me and you to be his instrument of judgment? I gave some things to think about. May of uh, 2014, a school teacher in Rancho Santa Margarita, 58 years old school teacher, got in a lot of trouble, took a kid's skort, uh, 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 what do you call those things? Skateboard. Took a kid's skateboard and smashed it and threw it across the room. And they said, you know, Teacher, you know, you sort of lost your temper. You really shouldn't do that. And this is what he said. God told me to punish the student. Quote, I felt compelled by a higher power. Have you ever been grabbed by the Lord in a way you thought you never would or could? Could that be true? Yeah. Would that Normally be your experience? Well, probably not. You want another one that gets worse? How about these people? Do you know what they're doing? What is the Islamic State doing all over the Middle East? They are becoming the judgment of God. It's not my God. It's their God, though. They have said, our God is using us to bring about his judgment on the rest of the earth and the people who don't believe. This is exactly what they're doing. Is that not what they're doing? But, of course, we would never do anything like that. After all, listen to what Jesus had to say to his people. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. How about Matthew chapter 5, verse 9? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. How about Matthew chapter 5, verse 11? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. These all come out of a thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Some people have said, well, the Sermon on the Mount does not apply today. That's a good way to get out of the whole thing, isn't it? 
I'm afraid the Sermon on the Mount does apply to today. So, could God use me or us or the church to be his instruments of these judgments? Well, of course he could. We should have a little cause to pause about some Christian history. Don't get mad at me. I didn't make this stuff up. You know this guy, Constantine the Great? Constantine the Great lived 274-337. He was emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, A.D. He was in a battle against a group from Gaul and had a vision. And the vision was he saw in the sky a cross And he said, he heard in the vision that in this sign you will conquer. So he had all of his soldiers paint a cross on their shields. This was the Roman army. And he went into battle and he won. And he said, see, God used me and my pagan army to win this battle. And he brought about a total change in the whole Roman Empire. He said Christianity is now the legal religion of the realm. And he set us free from all the persecution that was happening to Christians in the empire. So could God use him to do that? Well, he could. Did he? I don't know. Do you know? How about these? They're called the Crusades. They lasted for 200 years, from 1096 to 1270. The goal of the Crusades was to take Jerusalem back from the Muslims. Now, the Muslims had taken it in the first place, but the church sent forth one after another, army after another, army after another, for 200 years to conquer Jerusalem. And it was kind of funny because for 200 years, the Christians were there fighting for their God, and the Muslims were there fighting for their God. And guess what? No God won. Nobody really won this. It just kind of ended after a while. So we would never do anything like that, would we? Do we think that God is on America's side? Do we think that what America does is God's will? Has it been in the past? You know, you look at things like the Second World War, where America went to war to relieve the world of horrible oppression and an evil monster. And you say, you know, that that seems as though God used us to do that. So does that mean God uses us all the time as a country to to do that? Do you know? No. Do I know? No. All I know for sure is that this is the character of the Lord God. I don't know what he chooses to do. I'll sing this song I checked this morning to see if it was in the hymn book. Onward Christian Soldiers. It's a favorite. You know, they wrote that for kids to move from class to class. Onward Christian Soldiers going on to war. With the battle cry we go. 
1980, the United Methodist Church and the Presbyterians tried to get that taken out of the hymn book. Well, there was such a big stink. And we cannot take that out of the hymn book. Maybe better, 1861, somebody wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You remember the Battle Hymn of the Republic? That was about the victory for the North. But what are we supposed to do with this? Nahum said, well, you need to know what your God is like. He is like a powerful, creator-controlling God, like a tornado. He's like a drought. He's like an earthquake. He's like a volcano. Yes, he is. Do you understand? He's righteous and holy, and he has enemies, and he judges his enemies. Yes, I do. Do you understand that he's gracious and loving and a refuge to those who seek refuge in him? That's what our God is like. How do you make all of that fit together? I got one last picture. Wednesday, I got to get on one of these things. I hate airplanes. I got to fly to Minneapolis, Amsterdam, Holland, Budapest, Hungary. I got to get in this plane. Now, for the life of me, I do not understand really how a plane flies. I understand, I read books about the physics, how the air goes over and under. I got that all down. Makes no sense to me whatsoever that an airplane that weighs tons gets off the ground with all the people in it. It's bizarre to me. Is it not to you? But so let's suppose, let's suppose I did understand that. And I had to get the airplane from Spokane to Minneapolis. I don't know how to fly the airplane. Most of us don't know how to fly the airplane, so all we can do is trust some guy that said he knows how to fly the airplane. We've seen where that comes in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> That's kind of risky. And then to get the thing to go over the ocean or over the pole, wherever it goes, to, to go to Amsterdam, Holland? I don't know the way to Amsterdam, Holland. I don't, I don't know anything about this. So, so what is there to do? i got to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get in the plane. I'm going to be scrunched in my little seat. And I'm going to sit there for about 10 hours and trust God. Because he's my refuge. And that's about all the people of God can do, isn't it? We need to know what our God is like. And then we need to understand that we're in good hands. I like John 14, 27, even though Sean Hannity uses it all the time. We'll forgive him. So what Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Oh, not as the world gives peace do I give my peace to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. And don't be afraid. That's the news of Nahum the prophet to the people of God in his day 
and today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, where do we go? We watch news that we don't want to see or hear about. We are troubled in our spirits about what goes on all around us. Where do we go? We cry out to you, Lord. You're a God capable of bringing judgment on our enemies or anybody's enemies. Your own enemies. You are a God who is a creator who can do anything, anytime, anywhere. You please to do it. And what a delight to know that in Jesus Christ, we can sit on the plane of life and totally trust you. We have a peace that passes all understanding. Thank you, Father, for an Old Testament prophet who basically spoke those words to a nation that was about to receive impending doom and to the people of God who would witness it all. We are a people of praise and thanksgiving because of what you did and who you are after Easter. In the name of our Savior, amen.